Decoding Cyberspace is brought to you by the SGAC Space and Cybersecurity Project Group, mobilizing the creativity and vigor of youth in advancing humanity through the peaceful uses of outer space. Welcome to episode 3 of Decoding Cyberspace, a show dedicated to exploring the frontiers of information communications technology and cybersecurity across the final frontier. On this episode, we are delighted to welcome special guest Donna Lawler, a leading authority on space law, Australian space policy, and the principal at Azimuth Advisory, a law firm providing advice and assistance to governments and businesses engaged in space activities. Prior to her current role, Donna worked for 20 years at Optus as a Corporate Counsel and Assistant General Counsel for Optus Wholesale and Satellite, advising on commercial law, telecommunications law, and space law. Donna, welcome to Decoding Cyberspace, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. John, it's a delight to be here, and congratulations on creating this podcast. It's a fantastic idea and a a great addition to the space ecosystem. Thank you. So firstly, could you help brief our audience more about your professional background, particularly your work and experiences at Optus leading to your current role at Azimuth Advisory? Yes, certainly. So uh, when I first started uh, at Optus back in 1999, isn't that embarrassing? Some of your listeners might not have been born. Uh, I, I came in as a technology and intellectual property lawyer, and I had no idea I was about to be uh, plonked into working with the Optus satellite team. And like most people, I didn't realise Optus even had a satellite fleet. Uh, not, not many people know, but, but uh, Optus um, used to be known as AusSat. So it was the first originally government-owned satellite, uh, op- satellite operator uh, which which had geostationary satellites. So when I came in, one of the first things that I was thrown into was the Optus C1 program, which was a, a hybrid civilian and military spacecraft, uh, uh, which Optus was building, um, which included a, a defence payload, and I hasten to add, um, not weapons, just a communication um, payload. Um, and Optus C1 is still there, still there today. So, uh, so over the next 20 years, I worked on a number of different space, uh, spacecraft build and launch programs, uh, and I had to learn space law uh, as I went along, uh, um, in, in starting by reading the, what it was, as it was then called, the Space Activities Act and all of the treaties. Very fascinating. So what are you currently working on at Azimuth Advisory, and where do you see yourself in five years? Oh, well, there are some things that uh, I'd have to, if I told you, I'd have to kill you. So, <laughs> but, but in, um, in, in, general, uh, in general terms, you may have just seen um, an, an announcement um, in various newspapers and on LinkedIn uh, that um, Gilmore Space and Space Machines Company have just mm. signed an agreement for Australia's first... Um, well, it'll be the first the first launch of an Australian payload on an Australian built rocket from from Australia. So that's that's an exciting piece of history to be part of. Hmm. Um, 
so that's the latest thing. But in 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 broad terms, we've been working on um, helping a number of governments with their uh, space laws, together with my uh, husband, Professor Stephen Freeland, uh, and uh, we're working on launch facilities in Australia, uh, launch vehicles, constellations of small satellites, space tugs, manufacturing in space, um, a whole a whole variety of missions that are uh, are uh, being planned in the background. So I think. Um, if you're in Australia or the region, there's a lot of exciting things to look forward to um, in the pipeline. Absolutely. And where do you see yourself in five years? Oh, well, you, uh, I'm hoping that in five years, um, and I, well, I'm forecasting that in five years we're going to be having a, a, a burgeoning space industry in Australia. Uh, we've always said that we need to play to niche areas but i think i think the current activity looks like we're we um have a, a broader um range of activities than the australian government and the australian space agency predicted i think their 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 uh, um understanding was that we wouldn't really have a chance of getting into launch facilities and launch and and um building space tugs and things like that so i i'm uh, confident that we're going to be surprising them all and be much, albeit not huge players, we're not going to be like um, the United States and China and Russia, which have much larger government budgets. But I, I think by in five years' time, it's going to surprise people what we are currently doing, including uh, lunar missions even. Wow. Definitely. So just moving on from this, what is it about outer space that excites you and where did your interest initially stem from? Now, I wish I had a good origin story the way uh, some people do as a, as a child staring up into the heavens. And, um, but, but the reality is it was, um, uh, uh, of course, I was interested in space the way everyone was. I, I was a Star Wars and a Star Trek fan. I won't say which I liked more because that can be polarising. Uh, but I, I didn't really see space as having anything to do with my own future until that first day at Optus when I sat at my desk and it was literally my first day. And the, the Optus rocket scientist, Dr. Gordon Pike, came and, and plonked the Space Activities Act and all treaties like the Outer Space Treaty and the Treaty on the Moon and other celestial objects plonked on my desk and said, if you're going to be working with the Optus satellite team, you need to read these so uh, I was I was shocked and delighted, and that was uh, that was the beginning of my journey. And it was only a little while later, as as a number of people who know me are already aware, uh, that I became aware that there was uh, somebody else who was writing and involved in this area, uh, Professor Stephen Freeland, and I. Uh, I sent him an email along the lines of, who the hell are you? I'm the only space lawyer in the village. And he replied back uh, that I should perhaps come and um, do a guest spot in his space law class, uh, which I did. And and Rita, I married him. So we now work together uh, at Azimuth Advisory and um, often speak together at functions. Oh, quite a story. So I suppose following from this, given recent developments within the area of space tourism. If you were given the opportunity, would you like to travel to outer space? 
Oh, look, of course I would. Uh, it's, uh, But I would certainly be wanting to check on the safety record of whoever I flew with. When I, when I give space law lectures um, at universities and other places, I, I always like to show lots of explosions as part of my talk because I think that's a good way of keeping people awake when you're talking about legal things that people can, can nod off if you just talk about the dry legal stuff. Uh, so I'm, every time I give a talk, there's at least one or two explosions. So I have that vividly in my mind of, of how explosive a um, launch can be and how things don't always go to plan. Uh, so certainly want to make sure that, that the man-rated or woman-rated launch vehicle that I was flying on had an excellent safety record before I went. Uh, but that said, the, the idea of... Um, looking at the earth from space and seeing seeing how precious and fragile it is and looking, you know, I, you, you can't help but think of Carl Sagan and uh, think about everyone you've ever known being down there on that on that planet below you. And, and uh, I'm sure that that different perspective that you get looking both at earth and even out into space from space would be extraordinary, let, let alone the fun of experiencing zero gravity bouncing around absolutely so just moving along as a member of the international institute for space law and a legal practitioner in space law what do you see as some of the most pressing legal issues facing human activities in outer space well the, you know one of the i've, I've sat for a, at a number of sessions at the un committee for the peaceful uses of outer space and an awful lot of the discussions there are centering around um, use of resources. But my personal view is that a, a more pressing issue is that of space debris and that of uh, um, increasing use of certain orbits and, and domination by some countries and companies of, of spectrum and orbits. So uh, the, 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 the crowded nature of space and the need to manage traffic, manage space situational awareness and manage the amount of debris that we put up there in order to preserve space as something that all humankind to make use of, can make use of for, for the benefit of humankind is, is a, a pressing issue. So I think um, having protocols on space debris and on and and I think moderation of the amount of um, uh, the amount of stuff that we're putting into orbits, uh, making sure that there is free access for for all users is an important issue. Definitely. So, in your opinion, has international space law jurisprudence say developed to the degree enough to regulate manage? the growing space tourism sector and to support prolonged human habitation missions on the moon and Mars? Clearly, there's no, there, there needs to be more development, development of space laws. We have a wonderful, um, in the Outer Space Treaty, we have a wonderful uh, foundational document that sets some of the important principles about non-appropriation and, and use for peaceful purposes and so on. Um, and uh, freedom of use of space for all nations. So there's, we've got some great principles, but of course, once you get people 
starting to build habitats, marrying, committing crimes, uh, um, extracting resources, developing technologies, developing intellectual property, doing a whole lot of things that we currently do on Earth and we have um, legal regimes that govern that, we're going to need to have more more detail, both between nations and also just just uh, regulating the activities of humans. And so uh, we're going to have to deal with um, various jurisdictional and, and all, all of that range of issues um, in some form. And my, my preference is that it be done to the extent at all possible in a multilateral way through the United Nations Committee for the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space rather than in a unilateral way. But we're going to have to um, find our way um, delicately because things can go fairly slowly there. Uh, so a, a combination of national laws and bilateral agreements and multilateral agreements where possible is probably going to be the way that we proceed. Um, what we certainly hope to avoid is an absence of consensus and people forging ahead uh, with in, in, in creating conflicts with other users of, of space and the moon and Mars and uh, uh, really risking, risking the peaceful uses of space for everyone. Absolutely. So just tied to this, what is your view on the recent Artemis Accords by the United States? Do you believe that this marks a significant turning point within international, the international legal order in outer space? Well, I think the Artemis Accords reflects the United States' reluctance um, uh, or preference for bilateral agreements rather than multilateral activity, and that um, reflects the current political environment there. The United States is obviously a very key player. There's a lot of um, resources and, and there is a, a great desire on behalf of a, a, a lot of um, nations to participate in the Artemis Accords and, and work with the United States on space missions. And Australia is no exception. So I have no doubt that Australia uh, will be discussing the Artemis Accords um, with the United States and uh, uh, will eventually become a, a part of that, um, is my, is my um, guess, given the enthusiasm to participate in the... Scott Morrison is even committed $150 million to participating in these Artemis programs. Um, but but I, I, in parallel, uh, we have um, multilateral talks happening, happening at UN COPWAS, um, which are uh, being chaired by Stephen Freeland, whom I mentioned earlier, or co-chaired. Uh, and, and I certainly hope that the Artemis Accords um, which are a series of bilateral agreements about resource use, uh, doesn't jeopardise the ability of all of all the countries involved at UN COPWAS to, to reach multilateral agreements as well. Hmm, definitely. So moving along from this, what role do you foresee cybersecurity as playing within human activities in outer space? Do you think it will create a more hostile outer space environment? Well, it's interesting. I've been involved in some simulated war games in the past um, with um, US and Australian military folks um, to, to see 
really to, to, to game out what would happen if there were a cyber attack in space. Uh, cyber attacks, I think we can assume, are already happening in space and there's already concerns on behalf of really all sides um, to make sure that that spacecraft and, and uh, space activities are done as much as possible with as much cyber security as um, as possible. So I think I think uh, cyber attacks are, of course, going to be making um, space a more hostile space environment. But it's incumbent upon us to not be naive and to um, take as many steps as we can to uh, uh, protect our space assets. But at the same time, in my view, we need to be looking for opportunities to create collaboration, cooperation as much as possible and to be de-escalating um, situations uh, and avoiding um, tit-for-tat cyber attacks as much as possible um, in order to preserve space as a, a peaceful domain. Because ultimately, if we end up with cyber attacks that, that, that create... Um, collisions or, or failures of spacecraft that create more debris, we could get to a point where no one can use space. Mm. So would you consider cybersecurity as, say, a critical infrastructure sector integral to national security? Yes, ab- absolutely. I mean, it, it, there's, we have to, we have to, we have to be aware that there are um, organised cyber attacks against all of our infrastructure happening uh, all the time um, and or at least there is the risk of that and we, we're aware of, of some attacks that are happening so cybersecurity sadly has to be a part of any any uh, electronic infrastructure that we have so that space space activities are no exception any um, if, if you're communicating with something that's far away like a spacecraft or you're you're operating a launch facility, or you're operating a um, d- dealing with dealing with any kind of space um, infrastructure. Cyber uh, cyber protections are going to be a critical part of that, um, and I think uh, setting setting standards and. Uh, um, you know, you know, you can only go so far with rules with these sort of things, um, and to some degree, it's going to have to be up to the private sector to act responsibly and just make sure that um, up to date that that cyber protections are constantly updated. Absolutely. So, in your view, how has Australia addressed cybersecurity issues in outer space? Has the government done enough to create the foundational basis for? supporting the growth of the Australian Space Agency here? Well, the, the, the um, foundational legislation that we're looking at here is the um, Space Launches and Returns Act, um, which sets up the licensing regime uh, for Australians who are seeking to create launch facilities or launch, um, launch rockets or, or launch payloads overseas. And um, quite responsibly, when the Australian Space Agency made the rules that sit under that legislation, they've included cybersecurity as one of the key factors that has to be looked at, and particularly for launch facilities and launch providers. Um, The Australian um, Space Agency is going to be reviewing any application 
for um, by an Australian company that wishes to do those things um, with a very um, strong focus on cybersecurity. And there is a requirement even to get to have independent experts certify that that the cybersecurity is appropriate. So the Australian government is certainly um, setting a setting a high bar for all space companies. But at the same time, there is always this balance between strong encryption versus the desire of security, National Security um, um, Department of Home Affairs uh, organisations to engage in surveillance. And so back in 2018, there were some laws put in place that required uh, technology companies to essentially be willing to put back doors into um, in, into technologies that allow our security agencies to engage in surveillance through technology. So there, there seems to be dueling policy objectives here. Both We both want to keep everything super safe, but at the same time, there is a desire to uh, leave back doors for security agencies, which I think has caused some... Um, consternation for some developing technologies here and 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 some angst in uh, foreign um, some of our offshore collaborators have expressed some disquiet about the encryption laws that Australia's put in and some concern that that might actually diminish our cyber security mm, definitely so having worked upon six satellites uh, build and launch programs for geostationary, satellites throughout the course of your career, including the program to build and launch the Optus C1 satellite. What are some of the key cybersecurity concerns for satellite operators? Mm. Well, it's now, it's, it's since since you and I first spoke, John, it's now seven programs because Optus has just um, uh, signed an agreement with Airbus to build um, Optus 11, which will be a software-defined satellite so naturally, if you're looking at a, a, a satellite that, that is possible to be um, reconfigured while it's in space using software, uh, you have to make sure that the cyber protections are very strong. Um, so without, um, I obviously can't discuss exactly what those protections are going to be, but I think we can be assured that that the uh, all of the... Um, TTNC commands that are going to and from that spacecraft and, and any commands that that can be used to reconfigure the spacecraft are going to have to be um, protected by a very high level of cybersecurity. Um, a, a, a while ago, um, I had an interesting discussion with a, uh, a, a Pentagon um, cybersecurity expert who had a team of I suppose you'd have to say hackers, <laughs> whose job was to look after cybersecurity for the United States government, and uh, and I remember she she was telling me that she she felt that some of the older spacecraft around had a number of weaknesses that could could uh, lead to uh, possible hijacking. It's interesting. I haven't gotten to the bottom as to bottom of whether or not it's actually possible but I've spoken to a number of experts who who doubt that it would be possible to take over a spacecraft uh, 
but really in certainly you can assume that the the newer the spacecraft the stronger the protections will be because they will have been created with more um, up-to-date protections and the ability to update those as you go even after you're in space for your 15 plus years of life is going to be critical because we both know that uh, you, the, you always have to stay one jump ahead of the hackers. Mm, definitely. So tied to this, from a more micro perspective, how do you imagine cybersecurity issues such as supply chain and IoT cybersecurity may impact upon human spaceflight programs? Yeah, well, if you have to be safe for, for a big expensive spacecraft, your, your safety program has to really be on steroids if you're, if you're talking about human spaceflight and the need to keep humans safe. Um, so uh, to, to the extent that you're relying on um, Internet of Things as part of your human spaceflight program um, or, or, I mean, there's, 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 no, there's no way you can actually, you know, any, any human spaceflight is going to involve areas that could potentially be hacked if you haven't um, properly protected them. Um, I, I actually wonder, and, I'm, and I've got to say that you're, you probably have listeners who know a hundred times more about cybersecurity than I do, because I'm, after all, a, a lawyer and, and not a cybersecurity expert, but I wonder whether uh, blockchain-based protocols are going to be an important part of verifying the the uh, truth of what is happening in, um, for example, machine-to-machine um, -machine communications. Once you get human habitats and things um, on, a, on the on the moon, and whether or not that might actually be a part of um, avoiding spoofing and hacking by having just multiple um, distributed um, swarms of machines that are verifying. Uh, actual transactions in quotes. I don't know if you have a view about that yourself, John. I think, yes, definitely immutability and decentralization within the blockchain mm. uh, infrastructure can play a significant role in helping boost cybersecurity in space. Yeah. Mm. Uh, there's a, what, one of our clients is a, a, a new Australian company called Aeroid, and they are developing a blockchain protocol for use between objects in space. So um, keep an eye out for them as well. Definitely. So to finally, to finish off, if you were to become the Prime Minister of Australia, how would you work to promote space within national policy? Oh, wouldn't that be good? Do you think that might happen, John? <laughs> it's always a possibility. If Trump can do it, then you can do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I... I... I did actually have a brief conversation with Scott Morrison a little while ago and he told me that space is his safe space. It was in the middle of the bushfires, so mm. I imagine uh, it probably was his, his, his happy space at the time, probably happier than what was happening on Earth and things have only uh, got, we got, become more apocalyptic mm. since then. Um, if I were the Prime Minister, I think one of the key things in terms of um, Australian helping the Australian space industry would be changing the policy on buying local. If you, if you look at the US is, has forever had the policy of if they can possibly buy American, they will, even if it costs a bit more. Uh, and Australia has not had that as part of their procurement um, requirements. So when the Australian government, which is by far the largest purchaser of 
space um, products, uh, when they're when they're doing their procurement, um, the whether or not the the um, manufacturer or creator of the space technology is Australian is is really um, either entirely irrelevant or almost irrelevant in their decision making process, and I think that's short sighted. So if I were prime minister, I would make that a little bit more front and center. Um, because I think there are, it, it, there are. It, it's not just a matter of looking at value for money in a very narrow way. I think you need to look at value for money and the, the benefits that can be obtained if you support local industry and keeping technologies and, and clever people within Australia and maintaining um, um, skills in Australia uh, is, is part of the uh, should be a part of the broader mission of government when they're spending money on space technologies. Absolutely. Well, awesome. Thank you again, Donna, for your unique insights into outer space law, policy and cybersecurity from an Australian perspective. We look forward to expanding on these topics again with you in the future. Thank you so much, John. It's a delight to be here and uh, thank you for your excellent hosting. And for our curious listeners out there eager to learn more about space law and policy or to engage the expert legal and consultation service for outer space matters, please visit the Azimuth Advisory website at azimuthadvisory.com.au. We thank you for joining us today and we look forward to you joining us again for our next episode of Decoding Cyberspace.